we are going to be entering uh, 2019 with a new series on the future of the church. What is the church for the future look like? And I'm excited about this series because we're going to go through uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to spend the next uh, two, three months going through 1 Thessalonians as well as 2 Thessalonians. And we're going to talk about does the future of the church look like that? Where you are really coming to church for it's because it's all about you. Or does it look something a little bit different? So uh, I'm going to le- uh, read you our passage this morning. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. We're just going to look at an overview of the whole book of 1 Thessalonians today. And then next week we'll start uh, preaching through uh, verse by verse. But we wanted to kind of give you the overall context. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, very short verse. It says this. Paul and Sylvanius, or Silas and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word this morning, we're reminded in Paul's letter, as he's writing this letter to a church that was just newly formed, as they were struggling with the daily uh, aspect of life, of, of how to live the Christian life in a context where Christianity was still very new and foreign. And for some who have faced persecution, even martyrdom, the question they were asking is the question we're asking. Will the church survive? Will the church survive in the next, to the next millennium? Or is this just a passing fad? And I pray, Lord, that as we look into your word, that you would remind us of what the church is and the mission of the church, that the church is the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, that we are your extension to this world. So we pray that you would now guide us as we launch into a new series, Church for the Future. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does the future look like? Have you ever asked that question where you begin to ask, you know, I wonder what the future looks like. Throughout history, people have always sort of prognosticated about sort of what the future uh, inventions or future society would look like. And in some cases, we have two sort of vision of the future, don't we? We have the sort of the dystopian view of the future in which everything looks dark and bleak and destructive. And the other hand, we have sort of a hopeful, optimistic view of the future, Well, the question that we've been asking, or the question that we're asking, is what's the future of the church like? Now, in this uh, video satire uh, by uh, a comedian, uh, he has this great little VR where you could sit down and you don't have to go to church because church comes to you. You could sit in the comfort of your church, choose the service, you could choose the songs. Wouldn't that be great? Is that what the church is all about? Well, for some, the future of the church is consumerism on steroids. It is a church in which everything is rotating or revolving uh, around me and my needs. For others, the future of the church is what is happening in uh, places like modern Europe, where at one time there were these massive cathedrals built to glorify God, and these cathedrals, uh, these amazing architecture, are now museums of a bygone era. It's become, in, in some cases, a chic French restaurant where they serve bread and wine, not for communion, but as an appetizer before your meal. For many in our cu- culture, we have a different view of the church. 
we have this view of the church in which it is this run-down, collapsed building, irrelevant and irreparable. For some of us, especially in, in some aspect of our culture, they see the church as being something that is outdated, that really it is part of an old vestige of a dying and dead institution. So the question that you and I are asking as we enter the 21st century or in the midst of the 2019 year is what is the future of the church? Because some of us feel a little bit uneasy of what is happening in our culture. And we feel like, what if the church becomes what is happening in, in, in Western Europe or some of these other places? Well, today I want to give you hope that there is a hopeful future for the church. See, many have predicted throughout the ages that the church would decline and, 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 and there would be a demise of the church. Even French philosopher uh, Voltaire declared, he said this, a hundred years from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. Well, a hundred years later, ironically, his house became, was bought by the French Bible Society and became the headquarters of the distribution of Bibles in France. Well, even Voltaire was wrong. But the reality is that the demise of the church has always been a question for leaders in the church. Seven and a half centuries ago, the church looked nearly dead. It was smothered by secular society, ruined by long-continued compromise. There's a tale that was told of, of, of Pope uh, of Rome. He had this dream uh, one night. And as he was dreaming, he saw this beautiful cathedral in the midst of collapse. It was crumbling about to fall. And just as it was about to fall, uh, the Holy Father, the, 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 the Pope, began to weep. And then in his dream, he saw a little man come up to this collapsing cathedral and he placed his hands upon this firm and strong and rather than the, the walls collapsing it was actually sustained by this little man he woke up from the stream not knowing what it was and next day the the pope was uh, a, a young uh, a monk was seeking out the pope's blessing because he wanted to go out and do mission his name was francis of assisi's and he was asking for the pontiff's blessing. And when the Holy Father saw this monk, it was the little man in his dream. And so the Pope asked this little man, what is your great adventure? And Francis said, to restore God's church. And how do you purpose to do it? And Francis said, by obeying Jesus. The desired uh, authorization, uh, the Pope put on his hand, this, uh, Francis, with a band of his, his followers, began to spread through the countryside. And everywhere they went, as the saying goes, little fish is swimming through the net of social convention. The church, challenged by simplicity, their poverty, their sincerity, their joy in God, cast off the self-centered complacency and again allowed the fire of God to roam. And the weary world found, for at, at least a time, a peace which it had lost. When I read that story, I was reminded that whatever the church is about to collapse, there is something that happens that God starts to stir a new work of God. There was a man who wrote this in the Atlantic magazine. He says that the church has had small influence of late and seems likely to have a little bit more in the immediate future. 
it's the church's own fault. Christians have become too willing to come to terms and even to flatter an essentially godless world. Sometimes this has been due to its own fault. It's come to the inability to understand what is happening. The church is losing its influence. And the question of that article is interesting. Will the church survive? By the way, that article was written in 1942. Right after uh, post-World uh, War II, they began, the church began to kind of lose its influence and began to wonder, what is the purpose of the church? And then in, a few years later, there was a young evangelist in 1949 that came out of the wood, uh, sort of the woodworks, and, and he had a revival in L.A., and this revival start, sparked the evangelical movement. It was in 1949. It was a young man named Billy Graham. And as I thought about that, is that God's church will always exist. Because God's church is not an institution. God's church is not an organization. God's church is the living extension, the body of Christ himself. See, the church is not just a building, it's a form. The church in its very mission is to carry out the work of Christ. And as we began 2019, I wanted to say, what does the future of the church look like? Well, in the last uh, 15 years, as I was preaching through all the different books of the Bible, I came upon an interesting uh, reality. Uh, we've preached through a lot of the books of the Bible. There's only about four books of the Bible in the New Testament we hadn't preached through yet. And one of the books was this book that we're looking at, 1 Thessalonians. And 1 Thessalonians was actually a book that impacted me when I first became a Christian. And I said, out of all the books that was very special to me, I have yet to preach this book. And as I was reading this book uh, this last month, I came upon this sort of reality of what the future church looked like. Because this was actually the first book that was written in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. And as Paul is writing this, he's writing to this new group of Christians that had just started to form, and he's reminding them of one reality. That our present life is based upon a future hope. That we as Christians have to have a future perspective in how we live for the present. And it affects everything we do. It affects our behavior. It affects our thinking. It affects our morality. It affects our ethics. It affects even how we work in the marketplace. So this book of 1 Thessalonians is, is an interesting book. But the setting of this book actually comes from the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, and I'll just give you a quick summary of it. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is on his first missionary's journey. He's going through uh, Asia Minor, and there's a map of Asia Minor, and let me show it to you. Uh, in this map, uh, we see Paul going up to mostly Turkey. Uh, can I have the map up, please? Thank you. Okay, so Paul is going up mostly uh, on Turkey. So Ephesus, that's Asia Minor. And so that's where the gospel began to spread. And we know that the sort of the capital of the, uh, of the mission work moved from Jerusalem to Antioch, which was uh, near Asia Minor. And one day, as Paul is, is continuing to circle back, he has a dream from a, from a man named Macedonia. And in chapter 16, he went through uh, Pergia, Galatia. And then as he was going in Asia again, an angel appeared to him in a dream and said, no, go west, young man. Go further. And this dream led him into entering into Macedonia and into Europe. And so the gospel now spreads from Asia Minor to now Europe for the first time. And as he's traveling around the, the European continent, 
he comes upon the city of Thessalonica. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Thessalonica. Thessalonica was founded in 315 by a Macedonian king. And it was named after Alexander the Great's half-sister, Thessalonica. And it was a, a, a big city, a port city. It had about 200 to 300,000 people in that city. It became critical as a trading hub for the Roman Empire. And when the Romans took over that city, it became the capital of the whole Macedonian Empire. It had been one of the busiest seaports and roads. It was a, a major communication and trade center. And because it was also the largest city in the province, there was a lot of activity going on. And so Paul goes to the city in Acts chapter 17. And so in Acts chapter 17, it says this, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphibius, Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And by the way, Paul's strategy was simple. As a Jewish rabbi, he would go into a synagogue and he would preach the gospel. And eventually, after uh, the gospel was preached to the Jews, then he would be kicked out, and then he would preach to the Gentiles. And so in verse 2, it says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath day, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Paul preaches the gospel. The good news that Christ came, died, suffered, and rose again for our sins. And then in verse 4, the response. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many, a great many of the devout Jew, Greeks, and not only a few of the leading women. In other words, there was a little bit of a revival that took place. Some prominent women, some Greeks, some Jews. And so the church began to form in Thessalonica. But in verse 5, Something happens where the Jews begin to become jealous. And it says the Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed the mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. So when Paul and Silas went to Thessalonica, they stayed at a guy's, his name was Jason. So they stayed in Jason's home. But Paul and Silas had already left. And when these sort of, uh, the, the riot of the crowd went to Jason's house, they couldn't find Paul anymore. In verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting. And I love what they shouted. This is what the future of the church looks like. They shouted this. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Isn't it interesting, the description of the church in the first century? That the church were, were a group of people that were turning the world upside down. They had a new message. They had a new lifestyle. Something was radically different. And the Jews and the Romans didn't understand this new group. And so they started to persecute them. And then in the next verse, as they uh, brought Jason down, they said, it's verse 7, And Jason received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. You know what the accusation was? The Jews said, hey, look, these guys are not following Caesar. They're following a different king. They're following this king named Jesus. And as a result, the Romans joined in, and they began to persecute this newfound group. In verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. 
it's, it's funny, isn't it, how money talks. And so they say, okay, give us some money, and then you guys can be on, on your way. And so Jason gives them a security deposit, and the church begins to grow and flourish. Well, chapter 17, Paul goes to another city in Berea in Athens. And in chapter 18, then he ends up in Corinth, where he stays there for a couple of years. In Corinth, he writes this very first epistle. Here's the beautiful thing about this book. This is the first letter that Paul writes to a church. And so these were young Christians who were now trying to understand how does all this, what is happening, make sense in the world that I live in? How does this affect the way I deal with, with, with my spouse or with my employers? How does this affect the way I deal with Roman society? How does this make sense? And I bet some people were asking the hard question. My brother became a Christian and he died. Where is his body now? And the ultimate question is, is Jesus even going to be coming back? These are the questions that existed in the first century, and these are the questions that exist for us in the 21st century. So Paul's admonition in this, in this book is simply this, that the church for the future seeks to faithfully live in the present in the light of future hope in eternity. Church of the future seeks faithfully to live in the present in the light of future hope and eternity. You know what Paul's writing in this book? He's reminding them this, that you as this newfound community, as this, the followers of Jesus, you have hope that is greater than any of the hope that the world gives. And no matter how hard life becomes, I want you to remain faithful to that call. Because at the end, your call will be fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes back that he will reign. And because he will come back, all things will be made right. You have hope for the future to live in the present. That's the message of this book. And so the thing that we're going to be doing in these next few weeks is we're going to be covering verse by verse, looking at this book. How does an early Christian hear this message in the context of where they live? And one of the things you'll find is that the early Christians in the first century are no different than people in the 21st century. Because all of us are created in the image of God. Yeah, we have different technologies, we have different comforts and conveniences, but the struggles that we have in the 21st century is the struggle of all mankind throughout all of history. A need for something greater, a need for something more, a need to resolve this, this inner angst in our hearts, which the Bible des describes as sin. And so I wanna just give you a few highlight points of this book as we uh, explore it a little bit deeper in the weeks ahead. The first message is this, that the church for the future holds salvation for those who accept and wrath for those who reject the gospel. The first statement is this, that really what Paul is reminding us, there are two groups of people, those who believe and those who don't, those who accept and those who reject, and those who accept will receive salvation, and those who reject receive wrath. And so throughout these passages, Paul reminds the church of the, role, the, the reality of the Gentiles. He says in 2.16, in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, in this way they always heap upon their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them. And so Paul is reminding the Christians that those who are persecuting you, those will one day be judged and one day be punished for their disobedience. And so throughout this book, we see the theme of salvation, that if you follow God, you will receive relief and salvation. But if you follow, if you don't follow God, you follow the path of destruction. 
you know, one of the characteristics of our day is that we don't like binary choices. We don't like this or that. We want multiple choices. Instead of a true and false answer, we want uh, choices A to Z. And when it comes to our view of God, really there's only two choices. Either we believe or we don't believe. Because that's the choice that Jesus gives. And Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount really gives us that there are two choices. Either we, there's the narrow road or there's the wide road. There is the wide gate or the narrow gate. There's only the rock or the sand. And so Jesus reminds us that there's really only two groups of people. Followers of God and followers of self. And those who choose to follow themselves are the ones who are on the path to destruction, path to wrath. And those who choose to follow God are the ones who are rescued. The word for rescue is salvation, to save from the wrath of God. You know, sometimes uh, our perspective of God has been skewed by the things that we see and hear around us. And even uh, among Christians, we sometimes have a wrong view of God. Some, some Christians believe, well, there's, all roads lead to God. Well, Jesus himself uh, debunks that. He says, no, there's not all roads lead to God. There's only one road that leads to God. But another sort of view is if God is loving, then how can he send people to hell? The wrath of God. And that's something that in our culture we don't like to talk about because we have this sort of rosy view of God that God loves everybody, everybody loves God, and then no matter what happens, we have this kind of peaceful, peaceful coexistence. But in this book... Paul reminds the Thessalonians is that those who reject will bear the wrath of God. Now, some of you may think, how do you reconcile love and wrath? Because in our culture, that doesn't make sense. So even uh, uh, some Christian theologians or recently uh, some even uh, pastors have written a book uh, uh, that says, well, you know, hell doesn't really exist. It's just a figment of, of, of medieval or, or, or you know, some ancient primitive theology. But Tim Keller makes this point. He says this, that actually it's the opposite, that love and wrath actually go together. He says, what rankles many people today is the wrath of God. I can't believe in God who sends people to suffer eternity, for eternity. What kind of loving God is filled with wrath? So in preaching about hell, we must explain a, 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 that a God without wrath is a God without love. Here's how I explain it, he says. People ask, what kind of loving God could be filled with wrath? But any per loving person is often filled with wrath. Pecky, uh, Becky Pippert in her book, In Hope Has Its Reasons, writes, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise choices or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Pipper quotes E.H. Gifford, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him, the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. She concludes, if I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but a settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. 
You know, the whole idea of the wrath of God is this, that God's wrath is not like human wrath. Human wrath is, is often uh, without full understanding. Sometimes we just react emotionally. The wrath of God is in response to a choice. That when you talk about salvation, really, salvation is God's offer to us in which he extends his grace and his mercy. And all we have to do is choose to follow. God's offer of salvation is free. So here's one thing that, about hell. Hell is not a choice in which God makes for us. Hell is our voluntary choice when we choose to reject God. And so the wrath of God is the expression in which we have chosen to reject. Because a true loving God is wrathful when something is out to destroy. And that's what sin does. For the wages of sin is death. And so throughout this book, we see this, this, this contrast between the people of light and the people under wrath. The second thing about this book is that the church of the future views death differently. Views death based upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, for any person, probably the most somber moment is when you're faced with the reality of death. When somebody you love passes away, you begin to ask those eternal questions. Why did this happen? And for some of us, death seems so permanent. You know, there's no sobering moment than, than the moment in which the person you love is at, you're at a funeral and you see that person lying in a casket. And your hope is that one day there could be some sort of re, reunion, reconnection. Yesterday there was a funeral at uh, our Anaheim Sunkist campus. One of our, uh, uh, the men who had been one of the spiritual leaders of that church, his son was tragically killed. And he was probably about 40 years old. And I remember one, one thing that Steve said as he was sharing his eulogy. No father wants to see their son pass before him. But then as he was going on his eulogy, he began to recount about hope. And for us as Christians, here's the, the thing that radically changes our perspective. See, I, I think in our day, because we have, pro, we have prolonged life, we have technology, we have medicine that keeps us living for a longer period, that we don't really understand the significance of death until we get older. And as I get older, I'm realizing people, my cousins, my relatives, my uncles and aunts, and, and, and my, even my parents, one day they won't be there anymore. And you begin to understand the somberness of that. And yet in our society, we have all the conveniences. And yet we live in a society in which death has become a choice. In the Washington Post, there was an article entitled, Suicide Rates Rise Sharply Across the U.S. Suicide rates rose in all but one state between 1999 to 2016, with the increase seen across age, gender, race, and ethnicity according to the Center for Disease Control. In more than half of all the deaths in 27 states, people had no known medical health, mental health condition when they ended their lives. Increasingly, suicide is viewed not as a mental health problem, but as a public health one. Nearly 45,000 suicides occurred in the U.S., more than twice the number of homicides. When people choose to end their life in despair because of whatever circumstances, it shows us that we are a society without hope. We are a society that is in despair. And it's not because we don't have the means to, to live our lives. It's because we have too much. 
And that those means are, are independent from God himself. And so the idols of our age have claimed our sense of identity, our sense of, of morality, our sense of meaning. But Paul was asking a different question. Because these Christians who had died, for whatever reason, and many probably because of persecution, they begin to wonder, is there any meaning to this death? And then Paul, in chapter 4, reminds us of something beautiful. He says, death is not the end. He says that death is something even better. And in verse 13, chapter 4, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, Paul's word for death is sleeping. And there's a reason for Paul to use that word because it describes what Christians' understanding of death is. He says, that they may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The Christian grieving process is different because our understanding of death is different. And then in verse 14, it says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, for a Christian, death is not permanent. For a Christian, death is a transition. Many years ago, I, I began to sort of ponder this idea of death. Because I think for, for many of us, when, when we lose a loved one who's a believer, there, there's, there's a different sense of, of how do we understand this? Peter Marshall was a chaplain of the U.S. Senate in the 1940s. And he was preaching a sermon in which he described a little boy. And this little boy had a disease that, and he was about, he was um, incurable, terminal. So his mother would nurse him and read to him and, and played with him, hoping that one day that maybe the doctors would bring some, some medicine and that could bring some healing. But weeks went on, and this little boy didn't get any better. He actually got worse. So this little boy would look outside the window and see other kids playing. And he knew that one day he will die. So as his mother was reading to him a book of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, Sir Lancelot. The little boy sat silent for an instant and thought deeply about this triumphant English tale and then asked the question that was weighing on the child's heart. He says, Mother, what is it like to die? Mother, does it hurt? Quick tears sprang from her eyes, and she fled to the kitchen as if she had to tend something in the kitchen because she knew it was a question of deep, deep significance. She knew that it had to be answered satisfactorily. So she leaned against the table. She had her knuckles upon, and she started crying out to God, God, help me to understand. How do I teach death to this little boy, to her son? And the Lord spoke to her and gave her the words to say, she said to her little boy, Kenneth, you remember when you were a tiny little boy, you played so hard all day. And when the night came, you were too tired to even undress, so you fell on our bed and you fell asleep. That was not your bed. And you stayed there only a little while. And in the morning, you woke up, and to your surprise, you were in your pajamas and you were in your own bed. You know what happened? Says your father had come 
with his big strong arms and he carried you. And he put you in the rifle place. And he said, Kenneth, death is like that. We just wake up some morning to find ourselves in another room. Our own room where we belong because the Lord Jesus loved us. This little boy understood what Christian view of death was. It was sleeping. That we will one day awake because our Jesus awoke from the grave, because he conquered death himself, because he resurrected. We have hope because if you live without hope, all you have is despair. And for us, our view of hope changes the way we live our lives for the present. And here's the radical point that, uh, that, that this book continues to make, that the church for the future lives in the present in the light of eternity. Because we have a future hope that raises the dead, because we have a future hope in which Christ is coming back, how we live today is affected by that future hope. Let me give you an illustration of that. Think about this. Does knowing the future change the present? One of my favorite stories I like to tell is happened uh, uh, about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, when uh, uh, this team called the Lakers were really a good team. And they, they won all these championships. I remember the last championship that they won. It was, I think it was against the Celtics way back when. And uh, it was game seven of the, the championship. And in game seven... Uh, I, I was going to miss it because I was on a trip from Chicago all the way uh, to L.A. So in the middle of the air flame flight, uh, I had already actually uh, programmed my VCR at home uh, to record the game. So I was hoping to watch game seven. So as we were descending into L.A., the pilot goes on the loudspeaker and says, congratulations, <laughs> the Lakers are champion, uh, you know, NBA champions for this year. And, and for me, there was a sense of, like, relief that they won, but there was a sense of, like, anger. <laughs> Why did this guy tell me? Now I know the score. So I go home, and I drive, uh, and I turn on the TV, and I watch the game, and I watch all the quarters, and it was fourth quarter, and the Lakers are down by 16 points. And I thought to myself, and I was yelling at the TV, the Lakers are going to lose, the Lakers are going to lose. And then I realized something. It didn't matter how I felt. It didn't matter what I thought. It didn't matter what my current experience of that moment was. The game has already been played, that the score has been determined. And it changed the way I view the game. And I think about the game of life like that. So often we as Christians view life from the lens of, of, of the temporary, from the lens of the present. And we forget that we as the people of God are to carry on God's mission, that we have a hopeful future. And there are three things that this book reminds us. Number one is that we are called to be a hopeful people. What I mean by being a hopeful people is that we are not just blind optimists who just hope, hope, who we hope for hope. No, rather than hoping for hope, there is true hope because the reality of our hope is this, that Christ will return. We have the complete picture of God's sovereign reign. And so God has given us a picture from Genesis, the very beginning, to the book of Revelation where the kingdom of God will be reestablished. And what he was reminding the Thessalonian church, imagine this, they were brand new Christians who really didn't know anything about the Bible. They had heard Paul preach and Paul begins to write scripture for them to remind them that there is future hope coming. That they need to patiently endure. 
And even if they die, it's okay because they're sleepy. Because one day you will rise again as Christ rose. And these Christians began to have a hopeful, hopeful perspective. I believe that one of the characteristics of a Christian is this, that we need to be the most hopeful people. Rather than having a dystopian view of the world, we as Christians need to have a redemptive view of the world. That salvation comes, and no matter how bleak things are, that there is hope, even personal hope. Back in 2008, there was a Christian recording artist named Stephen Curtis Chapman. And he suffered a, a family devastation that is, is unspeakable, unspeakable loss. He had adopted a five-year-old girl from China. Her name was Maria. He embraced them into their home. And, and as Maria was playing outside one day, Stephen's son, grown son, 17-year-old, was backing away on his SUV. He didn't see the little girl. And he hit the girl, and the little girl eventually passed. For any Christian dealing with that type of loss, or any person dealing with that type of loss, it, makes, it, it may make you bitter and angry toward God. A few months later, he was invited to sing at a concert. And he opened with the concert with the song called Blessed Be Your Name by Matt Chet Redmond. Two months after that tragedy of Mary, Maria Sue, he begins to sing out, Blessed Be Your Name. In the chorus of that song, he repeated the words, the Lord giveth and take it away. He gives and he takes away. And then he says at the end of the concert, as I sang the song, it wasn't a song, it was a cry, a scream, a prayer. He told the people in the audience, I found an amazing comfort and peace that surpasses all understanding. He shared about his daughter's death and he considered all the words to his songs and whether he could still sing and believe them. Instead, losing this little girl brought meaning to those words. Every song that he wrote about God became true. And I think for us as Christians, that's how we live. So whether you lose your job, whether you've been diagnosed with a disease, whether you find out your, your, your parent or, or somebody you love is, is, is this is the last season of their life, that our mission as Christians is to be hopeful people, to bring hope to a world that is in despair. But not only are we a hopeful people, the second thing that Paul says in this book is that we are a holy people, separated. He says this in chapter four, verse one, finally, my brothers, we ask and we urge you in Christ Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God as you are doing, that you do so the more. For what I, instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you learn to control your own body in holiness and honor, not like the passion of the lust of the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, the early church was given a brand new ethical system. Their lives were to be marked by purity, sexual purity. Now, in, in our day and age, that sounds prudish, and it almost sounds sort of uh, something that is, is so outdated. I call our society a homo by pan poly view of sexuality. Everything goes, everything is acceptable. 
But you know, this wasn't a new thing. This isn't a new thing. It's actually has existed from the beginning of time. That when people have turned their back on God, they have replaced God with their own sense of, 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 of fulfillment. The Greek view of sex, ironically, the, the view of the people that were living in, in those times was that sex is self-expression. It's just an expression of who you are. And sex, in, in, in a world's cultural view, is selfish. It's about me and how can I get my needs filled. But Tim Keller says this, that the Christian view of sex was very different and the, and the view of sanctification was this, that sex is actually holy and honoring to God, but sex is a sacrament. And that the ultimate expression of sex and between a spouse is to be bond in, in the bond of marriage and it is to be done in such a way it is for the other person. That sex is self-giving. He says, in the biblical view, however, the main condition of marriage is the binding covenant. And it is an expression of selfless love. And when you think about it from a biblical perspective, sex has meaning. In our tender world where you swipe left, swipe right, that sex becomes just a commodity of exchange. You know, when, when you counsel, when I've counseled people that have just kind of had a, a, a destructive, self-destructive lifestyle like that, that they don't see the holiness, the value of what, what a true bonded marriage could be, a sexual fulfillment can be. And that's what Paul talks about in chapter 4. We're going to be spending some time talking about this later on. But there's a third characteristic. Not only are we called to be a people that is holy, we're also called to be people that are hardworking. Here's something that is interesting. You know, oftentimes when we think about sort of a religious or Christian view of things, we often talk about in terms of morality. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't have sex with somebody uh, that's a stranger. We, you know, we kind of label it under those kinds of things. But here's a Christian ethical view that changes our perspective of how we work. He says this in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, we need to work hard. That our primary purpose in this world that we live in is to demonstrate Christ in the way we work. So Christian work, I think, is a real thing. We're called to work hard in what we do. Because as we work hard, it's a means by which God's glory is displayed. You know, one of the things that, um, that we want to focus on in these upcoming weeks is that. Because uh, later on in, in the Second Thessalonians, he has a whole section on lazy Christians. He says, if you cannot work, you shouldn't eat. And so part of our testimony to the world is how we work. And that work is not done for our glory or our selfish gain, but is done for the glory of God. So these next few weeks, as we go through 1 Thessalonians, these words that Paul wrote in the first century are practical for us today. The church of the future, for the future, looks very similar to the church of the past. Because we as people of God, because of that past event of what Jesus did, makes a difference in our present. So as we conclude our sermon today, I'm going to ask you for two things. One, is I want you to look through 1 Thessalonians and read through it. Read it as if you're the first hearer hearing these words from Paul. And look through what Paul is saying to remind a young Christian that no matter how hard, how difficult, how painful life can be, that you have to remain faithful because Christ has remained faithful to you. 